Okay, so today's the first of a two-part look at the Psalms. Um, today we're going to look at how do I read a Psalm? Um, how can I use it? What has it been written? And I think the better we understand a Psalm, the better we can use it in our in our devotional life, and the better we can read it and understand it and understand what it's saying. So that's what today's. Okay. And then next week, uh, sorry, not next time we meet, which is in three weeks' time, we're going to look a bit more at the theology of the book of Psalms, at the whole book, because, and and I'll I'll put the case for this um, in in three weeks' time, but it's not just a randomly collected uh, assemblage of poems. There's a structure and a flow to the way it's put together, and we can learn quite a lot from, from, from that flow and that construction. And then we'll look about how we can use some of those psalms, psalms of anger and psalms of lament and so on. So that's, that's for next time. Okay, but today we're going to look at um, how do we read the psalms. We're going to look a bit about Hebrew poetry and think about, a bit about literary forms, which I hope, and I never want this to be dry and academic, I hope this is something that will help us, will catch, it, catch our attention then as we read and use the psalms and help us to get deeper into what they're about. So, question... Just a general question, um, not about Hebrew, but about poetry generally. What makes poetry poetry? Don't look at that. Tell me what makes poetry poetry. Yep. Or not. Yep. Oh, yes. Sometimes it rhymes, yep. What else? There are a number of different structures that you classify people and help them, but they tend to have some kind of structure. Yeah. It's kind of just going into the reading, it just kind of flows that poetry. Yes. Yes. There's something about reading it out loud Yes, there's a richness to the language that you appreciate more when you read it aloud, isn't there? Okay, you can put, that, put that slide back up again for me, Sarah. Thank you. So here's my few thoughts. I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of thought thinking about a lot of time thinking about poetry in general, but um, something about structure of the overall poem, something about cons- and controlled structure of the lines, control of the use of syllables, and, and these all vary, as, as you'll know. Um, something about rhyme, as we've heard, maybe alliteration, assonance, the way words are used for their sounds, not just their meaning. Um, <laughs> something about the use of graphic imagery and quite often abstract content. Um, there's something terse, there's something brief about Hebrew, about, about poetry, sorry. Um, so you wouldn't read, um, you know, I walked to the door and opened the door and there was the postman, would you? Yeah, that's not poetry. But poetry might be something like, the bell rang, the postman came, or something. You know, that's, that's, that's much sharper, isn't it? It's much more terse. And, you know, the, the critics would say that there's a continuum between poetry and prose, and actually you can't put a dividing line and say, that's definitely prose and that's definitely poetry, but you get poetic prose and prosaic poetry and so on. So that's sort of general comments about poetry. And a lot of those, but not all of them, will apply to Hebrew poetry. And what we're going to do is um, look at some of, the, some of the features of Hebrew poetry which I hope will, will uh, as I say, enrich our understanding of the Psalms. Now, the really major feature of Hebrew poetry, which you will know if you've spent any more than a few minutes in the Psalms, is this thing called parallelism. Um, now, parallelism would be, let me just turn to a Psalm at random. I can't find a single example to see here at the moment. <coughs> but actually, it's, it's all through Hebrew poetry. And what parallelism does is the two, two lines that are adjacent to each other um, say something very <coughs> similar. So, who can find an example of parallelism? Because at the moment I'm struggling. Psalm 107, verse 29. Go on then. He stilled the storm to a whisper, the waves of the sea were hushed. He stilled the storm to a whisper, the waves of the sea were hushed. Thank you. So you can see, you can hear that the two lines are very similar but not quite the same. Okay. He stilled the storm to a whisper, the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, parallelism can work in a number of different ways. The, the, the most typical way is that the two halves of a verse reflect each other. Okay. And that's called basic intralinear, because it's between the lines, intralinear linear parallelism. Uh, no, it's not. It's in... 
Yes, sorry, in trilingual parallelism. Okay. Sometimes a single line itself has a little parallel. So as you, you most Bibles are set out as the ones we're holding are set out to show that it's poetry. And so you look at a line and sometimes a single line will show a parallel within it. But there's not so many examples of those in, in the Psalms. It's more in some of the other poetic books in the Bible. And then occasionally those parallels will go beyond go from one verse to the next. And sometimes even a bit further than that. Okay. So when you read the Psalms, you need to spot the parallelism. And you need to ask the question of what function is this parallelism serving? Because as we've already said, the two lines are not identical, because if it's identical, it would just be repetition. Okay? So what we want to know is, what's the second line changing? And what do we need to notice? Um, so sometimes the second line will strengthen it. So you'll get something like, um, um, I cry to God, who is my help. I shout aloud to God, my saviour. And can you see how that's got stronger? You know, I, I cry to God, I shout aloud, God my help, God my saviour. So that's become stronger, it's, it's becoming te- more intense. Um, sometimes it contrasts. So you'll have something like, um, you'll have something like, um, the righteous flourish in all they do, but the wicked will perish like the grass. Okay, so it's a contrast. And then just occasionally, um, it's, it sounds similar, but it's, it's deliberately a little bit different. Um, and, and we need to spot when it's a little bit different. Let me see if I can give you an example. Um, some of the, some of the Psalm of Wisdom might say something like, um, a wise son um, will obey, will listen to his father an obedient a wise, an obedient child will listen to his father. A wise son will obey the law of the Lord. I've made that up, but you get the idea that it's, it's something has changed, and you're expecting one thing, and oh, I was expecting something about parental authority, and I've heard something about the law of the Lord, and so it's it's it sort of caught me slightly. Yeah, it surprised me, and it's supposed to surprise us, and we're supposed to take note of that. Am I, am I making sense to everyone at the moment? Yeah. Good. So what I want you to do is we're going to look at some, a few psalms and we're going to see if we can work out what's going on with those parallelisms because I want us to, to try and use some of these techniques. So for a few minutes, what you've got in the front of your pages, you've got one, two, three, four, five little excerpts. See if you can work out, it doesn't really matter if you can put a name to it or not, but see if you can work out what type of parallelism it is. Susanna, could you go back to that slide? Thank you. Um, so see if you can work out what sort of parallelism it is and see if you can work more to the point work out what is the effect of parallelism what's, what's happening that we're supposed to spot am I making sense just take sort of three or four minutes to have a look at those I've done the first one for you you might not agree with me but I've done the first one for what it's worth have a think about those working, well, it might be, might be interesting to work in groups Okay, shall we go through them? I know you may not have finished them all, but um, should we have a look? <coughs> so if we go to the first one. So the first one, then, is interlinear, because it's between the lines, yeah, from one line to another. And if we look at the, the, the constituent parts, Israel, in the first one, is mapping, is, is, is correlating, if you like, to the children of Zion, and God described as maker in the first part is correlating to king in the second part. So I'd like to suggest that that's an intensifying one. You've got Israel as a sort of fairly general term, but that becomes strengthened to actually these are the children of Jerusalem, which is what Zion is. And God as sort of general creator is being intensified in the second line to talk about him as king. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at the next one then. So what do we think about this one? It's um, similar to that, particularly the second and third line. The third line is it kind of amplifies what's, what's from the second and second line. 
Here's the question of just the earth. Um, um, That's that's a really useful um, technique. That's a really useful concept to have in your mind, actually. That idea that sometimes you you zoom in or, or zoom out, and we look at another psalm. Actually, does that in a little while? Yeah. So I think this is interlinear again, but it's a triple this time. There's not so many triples in the psalms, but this is a triple interlinear. Um, now, if I just just put that next slide up. Now, I don't want to bamboozle anybody, but I want to show you. I'm really, I couldn't separate these words anymore without it all reversing. It's wrong with you because it's backwards. But if, can you see that there are three words in each line? So this is even more parallel in the original than it is in the English. And what it actually says is the heavens he covers with clouds, the earth he prepares with rain, as it were, or as I expect, the hills he causes to grow with grass. So it's absolutely parallel. You've got the thing that's happening to what he does and what he, what, what he applies to it. Do you see what I mean? So I just put that up because it's beautiful. It's beautiful in the original. And the English is only ever a vague approximation. But it's, it's, it's that's so that's what's going on there. Okay. Well, what about the next one then? And contrast to surprises. Have you just put that up again? And again, three, uh, sorry, four words to each one. And again, it's much <coughs> more closely, much more closely. Um, and you can see, working from the right, you don't need to read Hebrew to see that the first two words are identical. Okay, um, which actually does come across in the English. So very closely, similar, very similar grammatically, but there's a shock in the second half line. Okay, and the next one. And exactly, I know the second half of each line as well. Remember the days of old, a bit vague. All your deeds, perhaps a little less vague. The works of your hands feel somehow more concrete, doesn't it? Yeah. And again, in the Hebrew, I'm not going to put the Hebrew up this time, I don't think, but um, beautiful, three lines, each with three words in. And the syllables even. You've got a three-syllable word, a two-syllable word, and a three-syllable word. And you've got that then repeated. So it's really beautiful. You don't get, you don't get rhyme in Hebrew poetry. Very seldom to get rhyme in Hebrew poetry. And when you do, it's probably just a, an accident to the, the way the grammar works. Um, but what you do get is, is quite carefully matching syllable, syllables, sometimes, just sometimes. But they're very beautiful when they're there. Um, good. And then the last one. Different aspects of the same, the same idea. Nothing's changed, nothing's developed through it, really, because it's looking at the different senses. It's the same idea. Mm. Mm. And it's a triple, again. I don't think the last one would count as parallelism. I'd actually have to look at the Hebrew to, to sort of check whether it, if it, if it fits very closely grammatically then possibly. But certainly the first three are very nice and obviously parallel. Um, and that actually straddles verses. You can see there's a new verse with the, the third, third line as it's set out there. So this is actually translinear for what that's worth. So this is a, a slightly more extended parallelism. This is about idols. Probably. Off the top of my head, I can't because remember. Because then the fourth verse just becomes a little bit of sarcasm. Yeah. The fourth line. Fourth line, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is plenty of sarcasm and irony in the Old Testament. So that's parallelism. Whistle-stop tour. Make sense? Good. Okay, another important feature, and this is much harder... You don't need your your pages just yet for a bit. Um, Much harder to pick up in the English, and really this is something that you'll pick up if you read a commentary. But acrostic um, is is an important feature in Hebrew Psalms. And I tried to look up how many Psalms um, were acrostic, but... um, um, I couldn't immediately find out, but more than more than a handful. The acrostic means that each well each line begins with a different letter, and that might be the letters of the alphabet, or that sometimes not so much in Hebrew, but sometimes that would, might mean might spell out a word in English. So you might have your letters of your, your words, the letters of your name, and then you write a poem along with that. So this is Psalm 145, just the beginning of Psalm 145. It was too long to fit on the screen, but all I wanted to sh- and it's done in the beginning of each line as well. But I just wanted to show you, really, to prove to you that it's acrostic, and you can see that you've got an Aleph at the beginning. This is the alphabet, this is the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet here on the right comparison. Aleph, Aleph, Bet, Bet, Gimel, Gimel, and so on. And it goes all the way down for the full length of the Hebrew alphabet. And it, it won't show up in your English Bible, unfortunately. That's the, the limitation of, of, of the thing. So Psalm 145 is a good example. Um, the classic example, anyone know what the classic example is? 119. Where each verse begins, the whole verse, every single line, begins with an aleph. And then the next verse, and, and when I say verse, I don't mean biblical verse, I mean stanza of the poem. So if you flick quickly to 119. <coughs> It does actually tell you in this Bible. Page 433. So if you see that um, the first stanza, it actually says Aleph above it. Do you see? And then you flick over the page. Verse 9 is the beginning of the next stanza. And that's, that's a bet. And so on. So that's the, the classic one. But there's a number of acrostic poems um, in the Psalms, but it's the sort of thing that you won't pick up unless you've got commentary. So just flagged it up for in- interest, really. I don't think it is. It's definitely in Lamentations, and definitely in parts of Proverbs. Proverbs 31 is an acrostic, and possibly another bit of Proverbs as well. I don't think it's in some of the Psalms. Yeah. <coughs> Is there any sort of payback to be had for recognising it? I think it's just an appreciation of the beauty and the the passion that went into the writing of it. Really, it's this is it's it's hard for us to appreciate because whatever three four thousand years separates us from the writer, and an incredibly different culture separates us from the writer. And sometimes we read this and we don't appreciate how artfully this has been written and crafted and I just think when you look at something that is really artful it makes you appreciate the subject of whatever it is they wrote it for makes you realise that the passion and the, the, the intensity that they, that they felt to, to cause them to do that I think that's what I'd say I think also it inspires us to write our own acrostic psalms which I have been known to do in a small group and we've got stuck on one or two letters <laughs> Z is a particularly interesting one. <laughs> um, okay, click on to the next one, please, Sarah. Um, just a very brief, and I've mentioned this already, um, that syllable counting, it's, it's a little bit hard to be sure because all we really have of the Hebrew Bible as written is the consonants. Um, and the vowels have been added later by helpful people called the Masoretes. Um, but we're not absolutely co- confident. We can't be absolutely confident that they got it right in every single place. So the syllables are a little uncertain to us. So we're, li- we're sort of groping a little bit in the dark. But it does look as if in places they have very carefully constructed their, their writings by syllable. And sometimes by stress as well. So again, you're not going to be able to access that from the English Bible. But just to tell you it's there... Because some, and, it's, and it's richly beautiful when it is there, I'd say. Right, some stuff that you can access through your English Bible, to get on to the next one, is something called chiasm. And all chiasm is, is it's, um, it's writing that reflects on itself. So a very simple 
chiasm in English would be um, I love chocolate. Mm-hmm. This is something Victoria's doing a project on chocolate, so it must be in my mind. Um, I love chocolate. Brown and delicious. I love chocolate. Or you could or you could vary that third line. Um, but effectively saying the same thing. So I love chocolate. Brown and delicious. Chocolate is my best friend. Okay? <laughs> so you can see that you're reflecting and you've got a central point. Okay. Now, chiasm can be a whole lot more complicated than that. And, and sometimes it's, it's lines and lines and lines. And the way they set it out in, in the books when they write about it, and I'll, I'll show you one of these in a minute, is for you, they go, here's the first line, here's the second line, here's the third line, they sort of stagger it. And you can see the middle point, and then you see that it comes back out again. So sometimes chiasm works in a very complex structure. Sometimes it's, it's much more like um, just a book frame. So you've got the same same line or the same idea the beginning and end of the song sometimes you just get little mini chiasms here's a mini chiasm just in the middle of Psalm 12 have a look at this it says may the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that makes great boasts those who say with our tongue we all prevail our lips are, are with us who is master over us so you've got lips tongue tongue lips do you see not, not an accident you put there very deliberately as a, as a poetic device. Um, let's just have a quick look at. I've got some others here. Yes, we've got the next one for me. Right now, then, what I want to do. See if, you see if you can. Sometimes chiasms are easier to spot than others. What I'd like to try is a little experiment. I want you to look at that. Okay, and I'm going to read the psalm. And I want you to see if following that, as I read it, if you can spot those, that chiasm. Are you with me? Right. And I'll tell you the verses, I think, when they change, so that you can try and see if it works. So, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse 2. When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh... When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Verse 5. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling, he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. 6b. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. 8a. My heart says of you, seek his face. 8b. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. 9 do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Saviour. 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over... Uh, sorry, 12. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. One of my favourite psalms, actually. Um, could you see it when I read it? Did it, did it jump out at well? Did it... So, but I don't think it's obvious. I, I couldn't immediately spot it as I was reading it through there. Um, it takes a bit of digging. I, I think that's the, the thing about the Bible is there are gems to be found on the surface, but there's richer gold, there's richer gems to be found when you dig the more the deeper you dig. And, and there's there's an example. So look out for chiasm because it's it's another it's just another thing to appreciate, but another thing to, to lead you into the depth of what the psalmist is trying to say. And the other thing about a chiasm is what's most important is usually in the middle. And we'll look at a a psalm in a minute that that does that. 
So what was the middle of this one? It was, so, it was nine, wasn't it? Uh, sorry, eight, A and B. My heart says if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. That's sort of the, the pinnacle of it all. It works in towards that, and then it works back out again. And the other bit that's important about chiasm is usually the beginning and the end. So those, if you spot a chiasm, look for the beginning. What's, look at the beginning and the end. What's, what's the psalmist saying? Look at the middle. What's the psalmist wanting to really draw attention to? Have we lost anyone yet? <laughs> we lost you. Sorry? I've lost you. Okay. Sorry. Okay. We'll move on. Right. Here's another tip when you're reading Psalms. Oh, no. Well, what happened there? That, that's it. That's it. Look. Look for the hinge. Okay. And a hinge is where the psalmist is going in one direction and then he often, not always, says but and then he goes off in another direction. Okay, look for the hinge. Now let's look at Psalm 73. And we'll, oh golly, it's quite long, isn't it? Right, okay, let me... Um, Do you know, I make, I've jotted down 73 and I thought I won't need to write down where, where the verse of the hinge is because I'll, I'll remember. <laughs> right, who can spot the hinge first? <laughs> Quick! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Right, so Psalm 73 is a lovely psalm and it's a psalm for those of us who've been knocking around the faith for a few years and look at people who aren't believers and think they've got it easy. They don't... Um, we, think, we look at we look at people who aren't believers and we think they've, they've got it easy they don't have to live by the same code of conduct that we do they don't have the high expectations that we have lucky old them okay, and this is a psalm for us when we live in these, this situation so it starts off um, verse 2 my foot had almost slipped you know, I almost let go of it because I envied the arrogant, verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, everything's great for them, they, they boast and sin and get away with it. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Until, there's your hinge, I entered the sanctuary of God and finally I understood where they're heading. <coughs> And then he says, but look, this is what's going to happen. They're on slippery ground. It's all going to be swept away from them. But you, you know, you're always with me. Verse um, 23. And, you know, everything else may be taken away from me, but God is my strength and my portion. Verse 26. So there's your hinge. Really important to spot the hinge where there is one in a psalm. And they're quite often there. One of my, again, a psalm that I love, 73. Uh, we won't read it right through now, but I, I commend it to you. Um, have a quick look at 22. 22 is an interesting psalm. 22 is a particularly holy psalm, I think, because, well, it's a facetious thing to say, but it, 22 is the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. Um, he probably, actually, just out of interest, and I'll mention this next time, but he probably worked his way through the entire Psalter until he got to 31, I think. There we are. If you just turn over the page to 31, verse 5. And what does it say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's, if you look at the words of Jesus on the cross, it, it does look as if he was probably going right through. Um, which makes those 30 and a bit psalms particularly precious, I think. And we'll say a bit more about that next time. But if we look at Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is interesting. A classic psalm of lament, a classic psalm of crying out to God and saying, God... Why is it like this? You know, life is dreadful. Why is it like this? But if you look, Psalm 22 has a number of hinges, and it hinges, in fact, backwards and forwards. So if we start at the beginning, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And he goes back into lament, verse 6, but I'm a worm, not a man, so on. Verse 9, yet, back into lament, verse 12, goes right the way through to 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. And from there, really, his, the psalmist's faith and confidence picks up again and, and proceeds right through to the end of the psalm. So, a psalm with a number of hinges. So spot the hinges because they, they navigate. Sometimes I think we read psalms, I know I do. If it's not a psalm I know well, I'm not taking time to really think about it. We read a psalm and it just washes over us. We think, there's a nice little line, and there's a nice little line, and oh yes, there's a nice little line. But we don't really follow the psalmist's train of thought, follow the way he's trying to lead us, trying to lead us on a journey quite often. So, look for the hinges in the psalms. Right. Now, I said already that poetry contains a lot of image, and Hebrew poetry is, is no exception. A lot of imagery in, in the Psalms. I just want to pick out a few points about that. Um, when you see an image in the Psalm, you need to have a think about what it's, what it's representing. Because images can sometimes have different meanings. So here's a classic example. What does the right hand of God represent? If you read the right hand of God in the Bible, what do you think about? Power. Sorry? Power. 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 Yep. And okay, go on. He does, yes. So if you just flick over, Susanna. So if we look at these two quotations from the Psalms, I think they're, they're used differently, that the right hand of God is used in different senses. The first one, your right hand, this is the power, this is the, 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 the might one. Your right hand, O Lord, majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. But in a completely different place in the Psalms. Sit at my right hand, the place of honour. Yeah, the place where the honoured guest sits. Um, until I make your enemies footstool to your feet. So when you see an image, how do you think? about what, what it's representing because it, it's not necessarily the same as the last time it was used or the next time it's used. The next thing about an image is how far does the image stretch? So you're reading it about an image one place and sometimes it will come back to that image later on in the psalm. Sometimes it will push that image for a while and then drop it. So when you see that, think about what, what's going on here and how far does this image stretch? Let's look at the psalm that we all know best. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, so we read that and we think, what do I know about shepherds? Not modern shepherds, but what do I know about ancient Near Eastern shepherds? And if you want to do that properly, you might want to turn to the commentaries, looking up, find out what we know about Middle Eastern shepherds. Remember that David, who wrote this, do we know for certain who wrote this? Um, was a shepherd. Okay, so let's look at this. How far does it go? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I'm still feeling like a sheep here, yeah? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, your shepherd's tools, comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I'm not feeling so much like a sheep at this point. Yeah, because you don't tend to lay a table for your sheep. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Goodness and mercy. So you can see how far the image stretches and where he drops it. And it's worth looking out for that. Okay. Let's have another look. I'm do a bit more work. So if you turn to your second page. This is Psalm 90, and it's absolutely full of time imagery. So take a quick look, work in twos or threes or something, spot all the time imagery, and pay particular attention to the sort of thing that Richard was talking about earlier. The point where you are doing a Google Earth idea of time, okay, where it's all down there and you're up here, 
and the time when you're actually using a microscope and you're right down close and in it. Does that, that makes sense to everybody, that, that distinction. Yeah. So spot those, and as you're looking, have a think about, can you identify a progression of thought through the psalm? Is the psalmist taking you on a journey that you can follow? Just have a few minutes um, of that, and then we'll, we'll move on. I'll leave you to finish looking at that, perhaps. Um, just a couple of things um, that the commentators pick up on that I'll show you. Verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's passed, or like a watch in the night. A commentator said one of the most, that's one of the most exquisite uses um, of this sort of imagery in the Bible. Gliding swiftly from a thousand years in God's eyes to yesterday that's just passed, to a brief watch in the night. Time used from God's end of the telescope and then swooping down into the world of human existence and uh, to man engulfed by sleep. It says, um, a thousand years for God are just a fleeting moment of wakefulness while man's whole existence is, is little more than a, just a, a, a blink in the night for him. Um, and I don't know if you managed, if you had time to look and see if you could... Let me colour it in with different colours, and it's quite interesting. If you do that, you can start to see the, the psalmist starts off with this big, broad concept, and then focuses in a bit more on very much on human time, and then focuses it back out again. So um, I'll leave you to, to pursue that in your own time, but I hope I've... Um, persuaded you that something interesting going on there. Let's take a, a look at um, a very brief look at Psalm 89, which is coming up on the screen. This is just to draw your attention to a particular sort of imagery that you'll find in the Psalms sometimes, which is what we might call mythic imagery. And it's drawing on the myths of the ancient Near East, whether Israel's own myths, or more commonly on the myths of, say, Babylon and, and the other nations. Um, and it picks up on that imagery. It doesn't necessarily mean it believes them, but it, it picks up and uses those images, imagery as, as a way of expressing itself. So when you look at um, uh, this little snippet from Psalm 89, um, let me just read from verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. Who knows who Rahab is? Ah, go on. Uh, the sea monsters. Ooh, I thought you were going to say the other one. I have absolutely. Oh, it could be Egypt. Oh, we read this song the other day, didn't we? <laughs> it's not prostitutes. No, this is uh, this is Rahab. Those of you who came to my thing on on Job, do you remember we talked about that primeval chaos monster, um, sometimes called Lotan or Leviathan? And sometimes called a Rahab. Um, and so this is this ancient primeval creature. And it says, You crushed Rahab like a carcass, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. This is picking up on that mythic imagery and saying, God is greater than that ancient chaos monster that you want to, that you, you, that you, that, that you nations might think about. But our God is greater. That's what that's saying. So just be alert to the fact there's some mythic imagery going on and uh, keep your eyes open. Okay. With me? Good. Now here's something with a, a fancy name that's not very difficult. It's called intertextuality. And all it means is when one piece of the Bible is deliberately echoing a previous, an earlier piece. And um, it's worth spotting because, supposing I said to you, um, it, was as te- it was as terrifying for me as 9-11. Okay, and you all know immediately what I'm talking about. Let's move us on to 3,000 years. And people who read these immortal words of mine that have been somehow passed down to them wouldn't necessarily immediately understand what I mean. Okay, but I'm using imagery that imme- or language which immediately has a resonance with you. It has got an echo with you. Immediately, you hear the simple words 9-11 and you, you see those towers, don't you? You see the planes flying into them. So that's what you're looking out for. You're looking out for a way, a time when the writer has deliberately picked up on language from other places in the Bible, which to his original hearers would be as obvious and as clanging as what I've just, the example I've just given you. Let me see if I can show you an example, um, which I think is going to come up. Oh no, it's in your thing. It's here, on your last page. 
So on the left-hand column, you've got Psalm 48, okay? And in the right-hand column, we've got part of the Song of the Sea. The Song of the Sea is the song that the people of Israel sang um, after they were brought through the Red Sea. So Moses, as you know, brought them out of Egypt, took them through the Red Sea, which parted for them, and as they came through, the, nation, uh, the, uh, the uh, Egyptian soldiers tried to ch- pursue them into the sea, and the sea closed over the top of the, the, their pursuers. And as they're standing on dry land at the other side, they sing this song, and we've got the second half of it here. Just take a couple of minutes to have a look, and I've, I've sort of hopefully helped rather than hindered by, by the way I've positioned them. See if you can spot some, some, some similar, sometimes identical or sometimes similar concepts and languages between the two. And the other thing to look at is something in verse 7 which isn't directly in the Song of the Sea but might have a, a resonance with something to do with that story as well. Let's just have a look at that for a few minutes. Okay, I'll, I'll leave you to pursue that as well if you're interested a bit more. Did you spot some? Some intertextuality? Did you spot some, some comparisons between the two? Yeah. And then did you spot the, the verse 7, what that's, what that's referring to? Well, it's not Jonah, because that's not before. It's, 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 Anyone get it? Yeah, so when Moses stretched out his staff over the, uh, over the sea, in, in, back in Exodus 11, 12, whatever it is. 14, Thank you, 14, 21. <laughs> um, it says, and the strong east wind blew all night. <coughs> So, given the, given the resonances with that's what's going on there. Sometimes you will pick up intertextuality. And the, of course, the, the more we know our Bibles and the more times we go through it and the more we've studied it, the more likely we are to pick them up. But, um, you know, a commentary, a good commentary will pick those up for you, other ones that you missed. I mean, I've always spotted this, this was one that I thought drew to my attention. So, but worth looking out for and worth observing because... You can, you can read Psalm 48 and get a lot out of it, but when you start realising it's echoing this monumental event in Israel's history, as soon as you realise that's what the psalmist has in mind, it takes on a richer new depth, doesn't it? So it's worth, worth looking out for that. Can I be honest? Mm. I wouldn't even recognise it. Even, even now? Well, I think if I was reading it, now this would have played to the I think there were a number of things that give us clues. I think the east wind gives us a clue. And I think this idea of these kings um, who are... Where's the reference to the sea in the psalm? But it's this idea that these kings are coming at you over the sea. Um, and it, and it's, when you, if you read it really thoughtfully, you think, oh, that's a bit odd. This is, you've got Jerusalem, which is inland, and this idea of the sea attack. And as soon as you start thinking, oh, that's a bit peculiar, isn't it? And then maybe that starts raising a question in your mind. I'm not suggesting that this is easy to spot, and I certainly haven't spotted it myself before. Um, no, I think, I think this is often something that the, the scholars will pick up. But if I'm preaching, I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, intertextual. And sometimes it's in the eye of the beholder, you know, it, it, people don't always agree. Sometimes we'll, we'll say, oh, you know, clear intertextuality investor here, and otherwise someone else will say, no, you know, that's entire fabrication. So, you know, you're on the edge of, of, at times, but I think this, when we put these side by side, I think it's very convincing. Okay, um, I want to do one more thing before we finish. We've been, we started five minutes late. Can I have two more, two or three more minutes? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, so what I want to do is just put some of these ideas together um, and look at Psalm 8 together and pick up one or two things that Psalm 8 using some of these techniques we might be able to spot. Psalm 8 is on three, page 386. <coughs> okay, I'll just read it aloud and uh, just have the things we've talked about in your mind and see what you spot. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So anything strike you? The last verse and the first verse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a nice frame, possibly a chiasm. If you flick on to the next slide for me, Savannah. I don't think you're going to spot this quickly, so I'll show you, but Barbara's um, started us off on looking for it. So if you look at, compare verses 1 and 9, you'll see they're identical. Okay? Now if you compare verses 2 and 3, with 6 to 8. 2 and 3 shows God as ruler. And 6 to 8 shows humankind as ruler. And then in the middle you've got something quite interesting. Absolutely. And what's at the very centre of this psalm is people. People. So this is a wonderful psalm of creation. You know, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, wonderful creation psalm. Somebody says there's no nature psalms, but there's creation psalms. You know, you, there's, there's no psalms that praise nature for its own sake, but there's a lot of psalms that pick up on the wonder of creation and say, God, you are amazing. But what's at the very centre of this creation song is man, meaning humankind. But later, applied in a special way to Jesus. And we'll pick up on that perhaps next time. There's something interesting, if you really want to look at this hard, and you look at the parallelism, um, pluck out any of the parallelisms actually, except those central bits. It's moving it on a little bit. So let's say verse 7. Flocks and herds and beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea. It's parallel, but it's progressing. It's saying something extra, isn't it? But if you look at those very central verses, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And those are absolutely slap bang identical. Okay, and to the attentive reader, certainly to the original readers who would have been much more familiar and much more tuned to this, but even to us when we read attentively, we realise that here's a psalm where you've got these parallels which are building on each other and progressing and progressing, and then bang in the middle we've got these two lines that say exactly the same thing. And then as we go back out again, we've got this idea of progression and movement, progression and movement, going back out again. But slap bang in the middle of the psalm is something that the psalmist wants to draw attention to so much that he says it twice. Um, one of the commentators says, this is a perfect, this of his chiasm, where it loops back round on itself. A perfect circle is closed. The majesty of God, which has been stated at the beginning, is restated at the end. But somehow, through the, the lines in between, we've worked out what it really means that his name is majestic throughout the year. We've stated at the beginning, we stated at the end, but we explore the meaning of that as we go through. And there at the centre is humankind, people like you and me. So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour through the Psalms, well, through the Hebrew poetry. Of the I hope it's given you a few hooks, a few um, things to spot out, to look out for that you may not have spotted before. I hope it will enrich your reading and praying of the Psalms, which is what it's all about. And we're going to do that in just a minute. We're going to use a psalm to finish off. Could you put the very last slide up for me, Susanna? Just, uh, just to say, so next time, on 5th of February, 
um, same time, same place, we're going to look at the theology of the Psalms. We're going to ask some of these questions. How do they fit together in this big book? Is that, are they just sort of chucked in randomly or not? Um, what do the Psalms want to teach us about God? How can we use rich poetic language to, to learn things about God? Um, how can we use the Psalms of Lament, the Psalms that cry out and say, God, it's just not right. How can we use those? What do we do with the Psalms of Violence? And we're going to look at that as well. And we're going to look at, I haven't put on there, but we'll look at Jesus in the Psalms a bit as well. So I'll try and touch on some of those issues um, in our second meeting. If we can go back to, and we're going to, we're going to stand and use Psalm 138, I think, to, to close so let's do that, shall we? <coughs> I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. When I called, you answered me. You made me bold and stout-hearted. May all the kings of the earth praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand you save me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Amen.